the National Archives podcast series, Our 17th Century Ancestors, presented by David Hay. Uh, thank you very much. Emeritus Professor sounds so pompous, doesn't it? When I got that title, I looked it up in a dictionary. Emeritus, one who has served his time, it said. <laughs> Family historians have done well if they can get back to the 17th uh, century. Uh, all too often we're left floundering once we get back beyond civil registration records, census returns, early 19th century parish uh, registers. I've not, back, I've not managed to get back beyond the 18th century with three of my grandparents' lines. I've only managed to get back to the 17th century with my own line, the Hayes. And that's because it's a fairly rare name, it's a distinctive West Riding name, and because we didn't move very far. We lived in the parish of Kirkburton, which you see here on an 18th century map, south of Huddersfield. I just put it in there as wallpaper, more or less. And we moved into my native parish, the immediate parish to the south, about 200 years ago. I can get back to a John Hay who died in 16. 33. His death's recorded in the parish register, he's the 10th generation back, but his birth isn't. And this is a common enough story, isn't it? I think, however, I can say with a certain amount of confidence that the Hayes were here much earlier than that. They lived in a farmhouse called Burke House, which you've got exceptionally good eyesight, is there and they're recorded in manor court rolls and other records as far back as 1505 at that particular farmhouse, which is where the John Hay, who died in 1633, uh, was living. And I think this is a fairly common story. If you can get back to the 17th century, you then come across gaps, but you've got clues which suggest that it's more than likely that that's where they, they were. So let's start with parish registers, and I've actually put an Elizabethan example up there from Sandbach in, in Cheshire. As you will know, the system of recording baptisms, marriages, and burials started in 1538, and at first it was the normal practice to just keep a record on loose sheets. Then in 1597, an act was passed saying that a proper register had to be kept, and all the loose sheets that had not been destroyed had to be copied out and signed by a uh, minister and two church wardens at the bottom of each sheet. This is why, if you look at Elizabethan registers, you'll be astonished to see it's the same handwriting for perhaps 60 years with apparently the same vicar and the same church wardens. Many registers only started in 1558 when Elizabeth I came to the throne, and, of course, the same act of 1597 ordered that bishops' transcripts should be made and sent to the diocesan record office every year. In practice, these are not as full as the original parish registers, but if the registers have been destroyed, they're a useful alternate source. Now, there was no standard form of entry in these early registers, right up to Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753 and for baptisms and burials right up to 1812 when Rose's Act came into force. And so the style of entry therefore varies from place to place 
and over time in the same place. And often only the barest details are given. Baptism registers just say, for instance, Roger, the son of Robert Bromley. Uh, occasionally they'll give an occupation, there's a painter uh, there, there's a dyer up there. But no mother's name, just the father's name, a simple statement like that. Sometimes, however, the information is much uh, fuller. Sometimes you'll get a keen clergyman or parish clerk who will give occupations, give the names of both father and mother, and give their place of residence. And you only wish that they would keep on doing that, but of course it's all very patchy. Burials obviously took place within a day or two of death, but baptisms, well, they varied. In the 16th century, William Camden noted that baptisms usually took place on the day of birth or the following day, but the later practice was much more varied, usually two or three days after the birth, but very often longer than that. Occasionally we've got registers that give both the actual date of birth and the date of baptism, so we do know that the, the time varied. And then, of course, in the Civil War of the 1640s, there were serious disturbances. In 1647, for example, the vicar of Hooton Pagnell in Yorkshire wrote in his register, In this year I was imprisoned and in trouble, and the clerk was negligent. <laughs> it is clear, then, that early parish registers, 16th, 17th, 18th century parish registers, are an imperfect source, usually the best we have, however, and that we should expect to have trouble in finding our ancestors. An additional problem is the inconsistent spelling of names. Sir Walter Raleigh, for instance, spelt his own name in six different ways, but never in the way that we spell it. <laughs> nor was it pronounced in the northern manner that I pronounce it, nor in the southern manner of Raleigh. The most common spelling was R-A-W-L-E-Y. And it's clear that this was the Devon pronunciation, Sir Walter Raleigh. In Sheffield, in the register, the surname Burnett, or Burnett, which is common locally today, first appears in the 17th century parish register and can be shown to have evolved from Bernard and Barnard. In the same register, the surname which was derived from the Cheshire place named Bramhall was clipped to Brammer, given an extra consonant as Bramold, and corrupted further to Brammer and Brahman. The Sheffield Telephone Directory now contains ten versions of this name. Some of these changes are fairly obvious. Brailsford became Brelsforth, and sometimes Brelsworth. Brownhill became Brownall, and Woolhouse was altered to Woolus. But other changes are harder to recognise. Shemold which is a name I found in the poll tax returns for the Sheffield district back in 1379, a unique name distinctive to that area. We don't know its etymology. Schemmel sometimes became Schemmel, and then it became Schimmel, before ending up as Shimwell. Now, we can trace such changes in local records, and we can see how the transformation happened gradually over the generations. And when I say it like that, you can see that uh, this could uh, be the case. But if you're working backwards in time, looking for a shimwell, 
it's far from obvious that someone named Shemeld might be the person that you're looking for. And this isn't just in the Sheffield area, obviously. This is typical of the country at large. To add to the confusion, these variant forms of surnames did not always become permanent. The North Derbyshire parish of Holmesfield, just southwest of Sheffield, was often pronounced and written as Hounsfield in the 17th century. That's the name of the place. But the surname too, the surname which was derived from this village, also took both forms. In 1644, Francis, the son of Edward Holmesfield, was baptised at Dronfield, which was the centre of the parish which contained Holmesfield. In 1670, he was married in the same church under the name of Francis Hounsfield. All his children were baptised with the name Hounsfield. But when he was buried in the neighbouring chapel in 1703, he was recorded as Francis Holmesfield, the name he was christened with. So clearly it was interchangeable, and this too must happen with a great number of other names. So we always need to be well aware of the ways in which local people pronounce names, the names of their villages and hamlets, which gave rise to a great number of surnames. And indeed, these local pronunciations are still used to this day. In South Yorkshire and North Derbyshire, for instance, Braithwell became Bruel and was recorded as such in, in the 17th century as a surname. Bolsover became Bowser. Kiverton became Keaton. Ravenfield became Ranfield. And Tideswell became Tidzer. Not at all obvious, is it? A lot of people called Tickle are rather embarrassed by that name, especially those whose you can remember reading the story of Mr. Tickle when their children were young, but it simply comes from Tickhill uh, in South Yorkshire. So local speech affected the ways in which names were recorded in every parish in England. And in searching for our 17th century ancestors, we need to be alert to the possibility that our surname may now be rather different from what it was then. I've come across people who will say, my name's Colwell but it's spelt C-O-U-L-D-W-E-L-L. -L. We've no connection with Colwells without the U. That's a nonsense, uh, of course. There was no consistency in the spelling. This leads us on to the recognition that some of us are descended from people who once had a completely different name from what we have now. My good friend George Redmonds has shown that the use of aliases was more common than we might believe and that finding an alias can sometimes solve awkward genealogical problems. Aliases, and it often just says that, so-and-so alias, some other name, aliases arose in different ways. Often they denoted illegitimacy, but in many other cases they were given to stepchildren. As mortality rates were high in the 17th century, widows often married again after the death of a young husband, and any children from the first marriage sometimes became known by their new stepfather's name, at first as an alias, and then perhaps permanently. In the minority of cases, aliases persisted over several generations. I've come across a family in North Derbyshire, who I've traced in the 16th and 17th century registers, 
and they're recorded consistently over the generations as Urton alias Stephen, as if the family themselves insisted uh, on these alternative names. But they are comparatively rare. It was much more common for an alias to last only a generation or two. George Redmond stresses the genealogical value of recorded aliases. He writes, A documented alias is valuable because it offers immediate proof of a link between two surnames, links which would otherwise be extremely difficult to establish. Among the many examples that he quotes in his book Surnames and Genealogy, A New Approach, are two from an assize case of 1651 in the West Riding of Yorkshire, when John Mannering said that he was sometimes called by the name of John Grosvenor, his mother being of that name. And Nicholas Postgate stated that he was sometimes known as Watson, as his grandmother on his father's side had been so called. <laughs> well, we have to remember that even a, as mighty a figure as Oliver Cromwell was once known as Williams commonly known as Williams, as his surname, and that some people pronounced his name Crummel in the, way, in the same way as the Nottinghamshire village from which the name was derived. Oliver's great-great-grandfather was Morgan Williams, a Welshman who married Catherine, the eldest sister of the famous Thomas Cromwell, and their son Richard rose in Thomas Cromwell's service and adopted his patron's surname. So, family historians know full well that if they cannot find an ancestor's baptism record in the same parish as he or she was buried, then the obvious thing to do is to search the registers of neighbouring parishes. This can be time-consuming because it's not clear where to start. I'd like to emphasise here the value of the hearth tax returns of the reign of Charles II. The hearth tax, a tax on hearths or chimneys, was the chief source of revenue for Charles II's government. Levied twice a year at Lady Day and Michaelmas between 1662 and 1688. It was abolished at the so-called Glorious Revolution. Nobody likes paying taxes. The surviving returns are kept here in the National Archives under E179, but microfilm copies are found in many county record offices. The surviving returns are from 1662 to 66 and from 1669 to 74. But the record is uneven. Some counties, particularly Wiltshire, have a disappointing survival rate. But an increasing number of counties now have at least one return in print, sometimes published by the County Record Society, but now published by a scheme linked with the TNA, the Hearth Tax Project at Roehampton University, which aims to publish the fullest return for every county in the country. Now, as I say, it started in 1662, and I quote, it being easy to tell the number of hearths which remove not as heads or poles do. In other words, you can't move a chimney. People might move, but you can't move the chimneys. And chimneys were, had become commonplace during the 17th century, an obvious thing to tax. Each hearth was taxed at the rate of two shillings a year, payable, as I say, in two installments. 
But those people who were too poor to be rated to church and poor rates, or who occupy premises worth less than 20 shillings a year, or who possess property worth not above 10 pound, were exempt from payment. Those who qualified for exemption had to petition the justices of the peace or the commissioners for taxation, and some of these petitions have survived amongst quarter sessions records. More commonly, there's a marginal note in the list of householders which indicate a certificate of exemption. Some lists simply note poor in the margins, others list the poor at the end. In other cases, however, the poor are not recorded or the lists are incomplete. But as I say, large numbers of exemption certificates survive here at the National Archives, and this is uh, an example. That's an exemption certificate with all the names of those who were too poor to pay. They're not, not simply the poor people who were on parish relief, they were the marginal poor as well. Now, the returns, not just of the poor, but of every household, the returns for each county are arranged by hundreds or wapentakes, which in turn are divided into townships, sometimes into hamlets or, or other small units. And the name of each householder was recorded together with the number of hearths that he or she possessed. The number of hearths doesn't exactly equate with the wealth of that person because you could have some rich people who were content with just one hearth, a bit of a miser if you like, whereas those with a lot of hearths might turn out to be an inn. So it's a little complicated, but for our purposes... Its great value is the list of the head of household in every village, every hamlet, every place in a particular county. Now, these hard tax returns can be used for a variety of purposes, and they have been by economic historians. But for a family historian, their value lies in showing where possible ancestors may have lived in the 1660s and 1670s, and therefore pointing to which parish registers to search once you get back, say, into the early 18th century. They don't appear in the same registers you found a burial, perhaps. Where do you look? Look for the hard terms, tax returns, and they will give you a distribution uh, of the name. So the hard tax returns are uh, a great uh, help to people in, in searching in, in knowing which parish registers and other records to look for. Now, in the 17th century, and indeed right through to about the First World War, English people referred to the neighbourhoods marked by these distribution of surnames as their country. Not country in the sense of England, Wales and Scotland, but in a different sense. The Oxford English Dictionary, for instance, defines country in this sense as a tract or district having more or less definite limits in re relation to human occupation, for example, owned by the same lord or proprietor, or inhabited by people of the same race, dialect, occupation, etc. I'll come back to that. Yorkshire surnames such as Ackroyd, Barraclough, Brumhead and Dungworth they sound West Riding, don't they? They're immediately recognisable as West Riding names. But when we look at the distribution patterns of these names in the Hartax returns, we see that Brumhead and Dunworth 
or surnames from Hallamshire, the ancient district centred on Sheffield that goes back to at least Anglo-Saxon times, and which is more or less the same as the Sheffield Metropolitan District of today, and the Ackroyd and Barraclough are from the Calder Valley, west of Halifax, a different country further north, where men wove cloth instead of making knives and edge tools. They rarely ventured, if ever, into each other's territory. Indeed, in the 17th century, it is unlikely that anyone called Brumhead knew anybody called Barraclough. So it's not enough to say that such names are from a particular county. We need to be interested in the neighbourhoods or countries into which these counties are divided. Only seven families of Dunworth were recorded in the hard tax returns of 1672, anywhere in England. Four of them lived in Dunworth Township, the local government area around that hamlet, one in the adjacent township of Bradfield, and the other two at the other side of Sheffield, Attercliffe, but still within Hallamshire. They migrated there by 1440. No Dunworths are recorded anywhere else in England beyond their native country. However, soon one of the family was to move far, far away from the home of his ancestors. In 1680, Richard Dunworth was one of the Yorkshire Quakers who emigrated across the Atlantic to New Jersey. He's a sharp reminder then that although most members of a family remain within their own neighbourhood, individuals sometimes moved away. Now, the wanderings of these adventurers made little difference to the distribution pattern of a family name, but we must bear in mind that not everyone was content to stay within the limited horizons of the ancestral neighbourhood. The surnames of the West Riding have a different flavour, uh, of the Yorkshire Dales, have a different flavour from those of the Calder Valley or Hallamshire. Let me give you one example, the Armysteads. They derived their name from a farmstead in Giggleswick, and they were recorded there in, in the neighbouring township of Langcliffe when the poll tax was levied in 1379. By the time of the hard tax returns, three centuries later, they had spread into 72 households, considerable growth. But 26 of these were still in the parish of Giggleswick, and 18 in other parts of Ribblesdale. All but three of them lived within the two northwestern wapentakes of the West Riding, Staincliffe and Newcross. Armistead then was a common name in and around Ribblesdale, but it was hardly found in other parts of England. I could quote many, many more examples from all part, uh, parts of the country. These distribution patterns confirm the impression of limited mobility that is gained from other sources, such as marriage registers, court depositions and poor law settlement papers. So in searching for our ancestors, it is important to have a general understanding of the stability and sometimes the mobility of people in 17th century England. We need to be aware that people who moved from the places where they were born usually did not travel far. Although the parish was the unit to which men and women felt attached, and which gave them a sense of separate identity, the wider neighbourhood or territory that people knew as their country was of even greater importance in providing a geographical and social framework for human life.
As I said, the, the term country remained in use up to about the First World War. If you read Victorian novelists, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Anthony Trollope, uh, you'll find they use the term regularly. And so we need to think in terms of a country when we're trying to trace our uh, ancestors. A country was normally 10 or 20 miles across and bordered by the nearest market towns. And in that area, people would have friends and relations and people with whom they did business. They would be familiar with, with that, but not with the area beyond their market town. This is generalization, of course. Thus, it was common for young farm servants or girl domestic servants to move beyond their parish boundaries in search of employment, but their movement was generally confined to the country defined by the nearest market towns, and often they sort of move around before going back to their native parish. Um, Mark mentioned early on Richard Goff and his history of Middle. How did he know I was going to mention that? It's clear from Goff's account and the other records that I was able to look at that he and his neighbours were familiar with a country, a term which he often used himself, that stretched from Shrewsbury to Ellesmere and from Oswestry and Wem, the nearest market towns. When the 1901 census returns became available a few years ago, I, I thought I would check on where the householders had been born, see how it compared with 1701, 200 years later. The pattern was exactly the same. 35 of the 135 male heads of household in middle in 1901 had been born in that parish, and another 76 had been born in neighbouring parts of North Shropshire. In other words, 82% of male householders came from the local parishes that Richard Goff knew so well a couple of centuries earlier. Only one man in 1901 had been adventurous enough to have crossed the River Severn from South Shropshire to live in Middle, and very few had travelled from the adjacent counties or beyond. The parishes of North Shropshire still formed a recognisable country at the end of the Victorian era. So I'm suggesting we need to have this concept of a country firmly in mind when we are looking for our ancestors. The great exception to this general rule, of course, was London. In the 17th century, in the 17th century, the capital city was connected to market towns in every part of the land by weekly carrying services. Those who couldn't afford to ride on the carrier's cart could get there on foot. London attracted migrants from all over England. It grew at an astonishing rate from about 200,000 in 1600 to nearly half a million by 1700. Yet the number of recorded burials in London's a hundred or so parishes was consistently greater than the number of recorded baptisms. More people were dying there than being born there. Uh, the city's growth was fueled by immigration. In a famous article, Tony Wrigley estimated that the huge rise in London's population between 1650 and 1750 can be accounted for only if the annual number of migrants was at least 8,000 every year. In 1680, the Yorkshire squire Sir John Riersby complained in the House of Commons that London drained all England of its people. 
London's growth in the 17th century was far higher than in the rest of England. In 1550, only about 4% of the national population lived in the capital city. By 1700, nearly 10% were Londoners. As their surname showed, Londoners were a rich mixture of people from all parts of England and from many parts of Wales, Scotland and continental Europe. At any one time, only a minority of Londoners had been born there. The pull of the capital city was exceptional, though the leading provincial cities attracted migrants on a smaller scale. Population, population levels in the provincial cities were modest in comparison with London. In the late 17th century, Norwich was the next largest city with 30,000 inhabitants. So, as I say, in searching for our 17th century ancestors, it helps if we are aware of this general picture of stability or restricted mobility within a neighbourhood or country, but with London acting as a magnet for the young, as it still does today. I remember last year standing in Leicester Square and realising that I was the oldest person there. What's more, I was the only person wearing a jacket and tie. <laughs> So, with that general picture in mind, let us now turn to some of the other records that we need to consult if and when we draw a blank in the parish registers. Wills are an obvious starting point, for they provide information about family relationships. You'll be aware that before 1858, uh, the church had responsibility for proving wills, and therefore they are stored in dioc diocesan record offices, which in practice are usually county record offices. And sometimes we need to come here to consult the wills of the prerogative court of Canterbury. In reading these wills, one obvious pitfall for the unwary is that references to a father, mother, brother or sister should be treated carefully as these terms were commonly used to describe in-laws. Likewise, the term cousin was used much less precisely than today. In the limited time that I've got available, I thought I would take just one will. It's actually dated 1729, but the man spent most of his life in the 17th century, so I thought I can get away with it. The will is that of Joseph Walker of Stubbing House. He was a nail-maker farmer uh, just north of Sheffield. His will was proved in 1729, and parts of it read as follows. I give unto Joseph Walker, my eldest son, the sum of one shilling in full. Item, I give unto Benjamin Walker, my second son, the sum of one shilling in full. Item I give unto Anne, uh, sorry, unto Mary Crawshaw, my eldest daughter, the sum of one shilling. Item I give unto Anne Walker, my loving wife, all my cottage houses standing and being on Greneside. Item I give unto Anne Walker, my loving wife, all the rest of my goods, money and chattels, provided she keep herself unmarried. But if she marry, my mind is that all my goods, chattels, money and cottage houses shall be equally given amongst all her children, which is lawfully begotten of our two bodies. Without the information contained in the parish register, we might reasonably suppose that Joseph Walker was a hard-hearted man. It appears at first sight that he and Anne had three children, who were each to be cut off with a shilling, as the well-known phrase has it. 
unless Anne remarried, upon which occasion the children would inherit the entire estate. In fact, entries in the parish register reveal that Joseph, Benjamin and Mary, the first three children with a shilling each, were the children of Joseph's first marriage. There's a clue in the fact that the daughter is Mary Crawshaw, it's a married name. And giving each of them a formal shilling was a typical way of acknowledging that the each had been provided for upon their own marriages and therefore had no further claim. The parish register also reveals that Joseph and Anne, his loving second wife, had a further six children, none of whom was named in the will. They were all minors, and Joseph was taking the usual step to protect their interest, for if Anne remarried, the estate would pass to her new husband, who might not act benevolently towards them. Joseph now appears in a very different light, so we need to be careful with wills. Now a brief word about manorial roles and estate papers. It is usually far easier to trace ancestors who lived on a great estate than it is to trace freeholders who owned their own properties. For the records of aristocratic estates are likely to be well preserved. They include surveys and maps, leases and rentals. In many parts of England, manorial courts continued to flourish throughout the 17th century. Transfers of land were registered in the court baron. The information that is recorded may allow us to deduce the date of death of the previous owner of a property and to discover his or her relationship, if any, to the person who succeeded him. It is often possible to trace the descent of a farm for several generations, sometimes going back well before the beginning of parish registers. In the western half of England, and on some manners in the east, the normal method of leasing property was not for 21 years in the 17th century, but for three lives. It was normal for a man to choose his own name, that of his wife and that of his eldest son, to insert into the lease. Such leases could be renewed with new names upon payment of another entry fine. And in this way we can trace the senior line of a family. In Middle Parish, in Shropshire, for example, we can find families such as the Lloyds, Gittenses, Brains and Formstons that stayed at the same farm for five, six or seven generations. This is a map attached to a manorial survey. You're lucky if you uh, find a map as well. It's of a parish of Wormhill in Derbyshire in 1675. I've put it in because it links with the hard tax returns of 1670 in Derbyshire's case, with the surname Greaterex, which is a name that comes from Great Rocks Farm in the parish of, of Worm Hill. And I think there were about 20 Greaterexes in Derbyshire, most of them in the Peak District, not far from their ancestral home, and not found in neighbouring counties. And you won't see it in detail, but these two farms are marked as over Greatrex and nether Greatrex, upper and lower Greatrex. That's where the surname comes from. That's a map here in the National Archives made for the Crown in the late 17th century. Finding an ancestor in the court leet, the other type of manorial court, I've been talking about the court baron, which transmits property, 
The court league, which dealt with personal disputes, nuisances, petty crime, and the smooth running of communal farming, is a much more chancy business. But we might come across someone who served on the manorial jury or who committed an offence. A list of those who formed the jury or homage of the manor was normally recorded as the first item of business. And in the gloom, you'll see a list of names. These are the jurors. And there is my ancestor, John Hay. This is 1631, two years before his death in 1633. My time is going. I don't have time to discuss every class of record that might provide us with with information such as poor law records or the records of central courts such as chancery here in the National Archives. Uh, But very briefly, what can apprenticeship records tell us? This is an 18th century formal indenture. Abraham Parkin, the son of Thomas Parkins of Burbage in the county of Leicester, Weaver, was apprenticed to Thomas Sutton Woolcomer of Burbage in the year 1769. And you can see that in, in the top there. So you can see, you're given the name and the occupation and place of residence of the master, but you also get similar information for the father of the apprentice. I have to say I've never come across an apprenticeship indenture for any member of my family. But apprenticeship indentures do survive in their uh, thousands. Here in the National Archives, at the Society of Genealogists, and in many county record offices. The statue of artificers of 1563 forbade anyone to enter the trade without serving an apprenticeship, and this remained on the statute book until 1814, though by then it was increasingly evaded. Apprenticeship served the purpose not only of teaching a trade, but of helping to ensure a supply of labour and keeping young lads under control. The apprenticeship indenture was a legal document which bound a boy to a master with a premium paid to the master by the boy's parents or in the case of paupers by the overseer of the poor. The boy received board and lodging and his training. He was forbidden to marry or to set up his own business until the completion of his term. After seven years or whatever, he could set up as a master if he completed his apprenticeship But many chose not to become masters of their own. You'll have come across the term journeyman and may have thought this was something to do with wandering around the country on long journeys, but it isn't. It comes from the French word journey. It was a man who was paid by the day. And these are people who have served an apprenticeship but have not become, not started their own business. They continue to work for a master on a paid uh, basis. Relationships between masters and boys vary considerably. Indentures could be broken only by the decision of justices of the peace. The records of quarter sessions include cases of absconding, ill-treatment, disputes over the placing of pauper apprentices, etc. Let me give you a few examples from the West Riding uh, just to show how the system worked. 1684. John Stevenson of Sheffield Cutler, this is at the quarter sessions, to answer for unreasonably beating of Jonathan Crooks, his apprentice. Unreasonably beating. It's all right to beat him uh, reasonably. 1687, the other side of the picture. Joseph Fox of Fullwood Yeoman to prefer an indictment against Sam Taylor, 
his apprentice, now a prisoner in the House of Correction at Wakefield, for unlawfully departing his service several times. I mentioned that uh, overseers of the poor could place apprentices. They had the power to place them in a person's house in their parish without the consent of the person living there. It seems incredible to us now. And, of course, this led to all sorts of disputes at the quarter sessions. Here's one. 1675. The petition of William Greaves of Fullwood. The overseers of the poor, he said, have of malice and evil will, but Mary Sykes, a poor child of the set town, apprenticed to the said petitioner, he not being capable by a state to take one, and there be many substantial inhabitants who are fit to take such apprentices and have none at this time. He was successful. A note at the bottom said, discharged from apprentice and to be placed with crook, another man, who perhaps also then did a, got a petition up. 1687, another one. The petition of John Smith of Hallam, who hath lately had an apprentice, tendered him with indentures confirmed and conceiving himself not liable, did appeal to Justice Jessop. He is, I quote, only a tenant of 18 acres of land at 12 pounds rent and has no other estate. Moreover, he is a widower and keeps house with a servant and hath two children, small children. He got 12 supporting signatories to this including a church warden, oh, sorry, no, the church warden, who was also the overseer, wrote to say that he was misinformed as giving John Smith sufficiency for an apprenticeship, and the petition was granted. In practice, however, large numbers of apprenticeships either, apprentices either failed to complete their training or did not become masters at the end of their term. Dropout rates of 50% have been noted in 16th and 17th century London and, and Bristol, for instance. My time's uh, running out, so I'll just end briefly. I'll cut what I was going to say about apprenticeships uh, a little and just end up with the Cutler's Company records of Hallamshire, which date from the foundation of the company in 1624 until 1791 when they found they could no longer enforce their uh, regulations. Their records are typical of those of, of many other towns. They give the name, the place of residence and occupation of the master, the boy's name and the name, residence and occupation of his father. So they're an important genealogical source if you can find them and useful also for getting a general overview of an industry. It is obvious from the parish registers, which occasionally record occupations, that as many as 60% of Sheffield men worked in the cutlery trades in the 17th century, long before the Industrial Revolution. Let me take example of one family called Mehmet to show how these records could be useful. If we start in the 19th century, if we look at the births between 1837 and 1842, only 27 Mehmets are recorded. 18 of these were in Sheffield and 8 were in the adjoining district of Ecclesall, now a Sheffield suburb, odd one at Bedminster. Only four householders with the surname Mehmet were listed in the various hard tax returns of the 1670s. They were each recorded within the hundred of Scarsdale in northeast Derbyshire. 
Two Edmund Mammoths were based in Alfreton, and John and Robert Mammoth were living in Eckington, right on the Yorkshire border and just within the Cutlery district centred on Sheffield. In this case, a definite link between the later Sheffield Mammoths with the Eckington branch cannot be proven, because in this case the apprenticeship record does not give full details. But we do find that in 1733, Robert, I just mentioned the Robert, Robert, the son of Robert Mehmet, completed his apprenticeship with William Howarth of Healy. Healy, originally it was a, a small settlement, uh, a cutlery uh, settlement, in the next parish to Eckington. The Mehmets continued in the cutlery trades for several generations and are still to be found in Healy. I gave a talk last year to the Sheffield and District Family History Society and I included a talk about Mehmets, uh, a bit about the Mehmets, and a couple, an elderly couple on the front row suddenly sat up with excitement <laughs> and said, We're Mehmets, where are you from? I said, Healy, they said. <laughs> I rest my case, I said. I have been suggesting, therefore, that for the 17th century, we need to combine the evidence of parish registers with that of a variety of other sources, and that we need to be aware of the wider picture of stability and patterns of mobility. Kresik and Staniforth were the two most common names in the Sheffield Parish Register in the 16th and the 17th century. The Kresiks provided five master cutlers between 1630 and 1667, and in the hard tax returns of 1672, they numbered 24 householders within Hallamshire and four in adjacent North Derbyshire parishes that lay within the jurisdiction of the Cutlers Company. No Kresiks were found beyond the cutlery district except for one branch that had long been settled in London. So they fit into my wider uh, pattern. Meanwhile, nine of the 28 Staniforth householders in the Yorkshire and Derbyshire hard tax returns worked as sicklesmiths in the Moss Valley in the parish of Eckington, just beyond Hallamshire, where their ancestors had migrated in the 17th century but the remaining 19 householders still lived within two or three miles of the farmstead where their surname originated in the early 14th century. Throughout the 17th century, the majority of boys who were apprenticed in the Hallamshire cutlery trains were born and bred in Hallamshire or just beyond. Two-thirds came from less than 21 miles away, and less than one-tenth came from more than 40 miles. The workforce was, in fact, even more local in origin than these figures suggest, for they do not include those large numbers of boys who did not have to serve a formal apprenticeship because they learnt their trade from their father, who was a freeman of the company. That's a typical arrangement. Migration patterns, I stress, were the same throughout England. In searching for that elusive 17th century ancestor, we do not usually need to look very far if we can't find the evidence that we're looking for in the records of the neighbourhood or country, it usually means that we have come to a dead end. And so have I. Right, thank you. This event was recorded live on the 19th of June, 2008, as part of Ancestors Afternoon at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>